others. We know from Matthew's gospel, not necessarily from this passage, but from other passages, we know this from the other gospels as well, that when Jesus uses the term hypocrites as a group of people, he's typically labeling that at the, the or leveling that at the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, that's typically who he's speaking of. But we don't need to think exclusively in that group uh, because hypocrites applies to anyone who's a hypocrite. And so uh, keep that in mind as we go through this. He's going to speak to them in this passage as well. Uh, the hypocrites, the religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees were the leaders, uh, spiritually speaking, uh, that day for uh, the faithful. They, uh, they spoke, they gave interpretation and explanations. They saw themselves as guides for all matters religious. And yet we know that their behavior did not match their character, that their motivation was to be observed, to be seen. Their motivation was external, uh, not internal. Now, the term hypocrite uh, is from the Greek word hypocrites. I mean, we, they don't say it that way. Hypocrites is how they would say it, but it's, or not even that way, but, you know, uh, it would have different emphasis on the different syllable. But the, the, the term is the same, and, and it's, it, you know, in terms of our understanding, we, 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 we still use it, uh, not necessarily in the same way, but to mean similar things. In other words, when it came, became uh, on the scene, it was rooted in the, the ancient Greek theater to describe an actor, someone who would often put on a mask, who would play a role, uh, who would uh, act out primarily for entertainment, uh, a character. And everyone would understand what was going on on the stage, and there would be no problem if you knew that person and knew that they weren't the person they were acting to be because they were acting. They were playing a role. And if you've ever seen uh, an actor in, in real life or on a, like in, in, in an interview, or if you've ever met an actor, and they, they're kind of known for playing one role, and then you meet them and they don't fit that role, it can, it can often be a little troubling, but it doesn't cause any problem. We, we get it. We know what's going on here. I mean, we're all in on the act, so to speak. We all understand what's happening. When I was a, a youth minister, I took my students to volunteer at a, a local food bank, and one of the local celebrities came and made a, an appearance, I guess, to promote the event. And I was out greeting people when they came in and opened his car door, and there was Mr. Miyagi, uh, Pat Morita. And I grew up as a, you know, uh, mostly in the 80s, the Karate Kid movies, you know, those were a big deal. And, and here was not this sage karate instructor, but this Jimmy Buffett-looking character with his Hawaiian shirt on that jumped out like he was ready for a party and even asked me, so where are the drinks at 10 o'clock in the morning? And, you know, that, that's, that's kind of the distinction uh, from, from what we see on the screen or what we see on the stage to what someone is in real life. But all of us, just like with the Greek actors on the ancient stages, all of us in the audience understand what's going on. Actors act for entertainment. And so as the term hypocrite has evolved through the ages, it has come to mean something uh, different. Uh, the same but different. It's become an insult. It's not, become, it's not come to mean someone who acts on a stage, but someone who acts in real life someone who is fake, someone who we would call two-faced, which comes from the whole idea of a mask and, and our real face. And so it has become primarily an insult, someone who says one thing but does another. They may do this to fool other people. They may do this to impress other people. They may do this to make themselves feel better. 
But because it is, everyone's not in on the act, you know, we don't see this as entertainment, it becomes harmful uh, to us in our relationships because the duplicity is secretive. And we don't know that the duplicity is there, and so when it comes out, it becomes destructive of our relationships. There's another kind of hypocrite, one who doesn't realize they are such. We have an old children's fable about this. You remember the emperor with no clothes, right? He was the only one who didn't realize what he was and who he was. You know, the same idea, actions not matching up with their own perceptions of their character. They don't even realize who they are. But let me stop here, and instead of saying they, 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 let me change my vocabulary here and start saying we, we, we. Because we have all played the hypocrite. We are all hypocrites. We've all done it. We're all going to do it again. This is a sin that is not unique to any one person. We've all acted hypocritically. We faked being happy when we didn't feel good because we didn't want to be bothered or we didn't want anyone to ask us what's wrong. We have lied, stretched the truth, twisted the truth, modified the truth, enhanced the truth to impress, to distract, to do whatever it is that is our bidding because we don't want people to know what's really going on inside We have demanded others be loving when we have shown hatefulness and withheld our love. We have desired grace and mercy and yet acted ruthlessly with whatever power we possess. And nowhere do we see this more closely than in the home, in the family relationships. Of course, if none of those examples strike a chord with you, then maybe the area of hypocrisy in your life is like the second example, the emperor with no clothes, no self-awareness of your own duplicity. But remember how Jeremiah, we weren't in Jeremiah that long ago. Remember how Jeremiah described the heart in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is the prophet's way of saying that we're all lacking in self-awareness, that our hearts deceive us. The problem with self-deception is that we don't even know it. This, along with pride, are the roots of our hypocrisy. So the way then that Jesus goes about instructing his hearers about this theme of hypocrisy is by addressing these three main components of the Jewish religious practice, that is giving, prayer, and fasting. And each of these practices are described throughout the Old Testament as practices of personal piety. Talk about practicing our religion or personal piety. Those aren't terms necessarily that we use every day, but these are the outworkings of the call to righteousness. Now, we've seen so far in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus has been expanding our understanding of the law, showing his hearers and us today that the law meant more than they realized and certainly more than they practiced. It was broader. And now he shows us here that from our heart, we are to live out that call to love. Love fulfills the law. We are to live it out in genuineness or sincerity. Remember, the Pharisees, the legalists, kept going back to the letter of the law that if we just perform, if we can just figure out what our one, two, three step method is and we just do these acts, then that fulfills the law. And Jesus keeps correcting, coming back again and again, saying the heart matters, the heart matters, our motivation matters. It's to be from love. We saw this last week, Romans thirteen ten. love is the fulfilling of the law. So therefore, a sincere love for God and for others that is from the heart, genuinely from the heart, is the antidote to our hypocritical ways. 
we're all guilty of this. I don't think if I asked anyone would stand up and deny it. We all know that we've done it. We all understand the temptation to be fake, to hide, to, uh, in a sense, protect uh, ourselves. And because of this, we need to hear God's word to us in this passage, that we would live not for the praise of men, not for the praise of a particular group, not for the praise of ourselves, but sola deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. So look now with me in verse 1, and we see what is really the thesis statement for, for Jesus' section in this sermon. You remember thesis statements, right? You had to write what you were going to say before you said it. This is, in a sense, that uh, as he addresses uh, the following things. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then he takes that, in a sense, thesis statement, and then rewords or uses the same structure and wording, but, but adds to it the, the three main components. So practicing your righteousness, that's the, the language that the ESV translates this into. It's the same idea that we see in Old Testament passages like Micah 6.8. What does God require of you? He's shown you, O oh man, what does the Lord require to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? That's practicing righteousness. In other words, it's living consistent with what the call to righteousness is. Now, some Christians object to the word religion. You might have heard people say, you may have said this yourself, it's not a religion, it's what? It's a relationship, all right? Because we've known religious people who have been hypocrites. We don't want to be hypocrites or be seen as hypocrites, and so we say, I'm not religious, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, let me say that we don't have to be fearful of the word religion. Just because some people misuse it doesn't mean that we have to be afraid of it. Uh, I think we can redeem it in our actions and our consistency to what we have been called to. Religion is simply the practice of our faith. It is the works that we have been called to. It's the outworking of what we believe, what we have been saved unto. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, yes, we are in a relationship. There's, there's no question about that, I don't think. Relationships produce fruit. Every relationship we're in, we come into that relationship or we maintain that relationship with that understanding. The moment a human relationship stops producing the fruit we expect, what do we do? We ask questions or we have intense fellowship. Uh, that is, we, we, we fight. What's wrong? Why are you doing this? Because we have that expectation that, that you know, I will love you and you will love me and I will care for you and you will care for me. And when that fruit stops then there's a problem. And so understand that's the same nature of the relationship with God. We have been saved for a reason, for God's glory. It is for this purpose as unto good works. And so that relationship that we're in produces fruit. This is practicing your religion. This is what Jesus is dealing with. So as we live out our faith through love that fulfills the law, we are to do so in an orientation that is directed to God. It's Godward. It's God-oriented. It is uh, putting God first, forward, however you want to phrase it, self-forgetfulness. We're going to talk about all those things this morning, but it's, it's ultimately for the glory of God. Now, it doesn't discount what we saw last week, that, that love is always others-oriented because it puts God first, so it's, he's an other, uh, so it, it, this, this is where it begins. But it's ultimately out of his love for us 
that we're able to love him. We love because he first loved us. And then it's out of that love that has been poured out into us in Christ Jesus that we are empowered to love others. So the distinction that Jesus is getting at here is in our motivation. What motivates us to do what we do? Is it to be seen, to be respected, to be liked, to be thought highly of? What is our motivation? Now, some see this as a contradiction to what Jesus said in chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your fathers who is in heaven. We dealt with that a few weeks ago. And I mentioned then this, this verse, I think I did, coming up, that we would see this verse that says, you know, don't, in a sense, uh, do, do things for the external performance or to be observed by others. The two statements, though, don't contradict each other. They actually complement each other because both of them deal with our pride. The first uh, kind of angles itself at our pride in that we are afraid to live out our faith. We lack the courage to do what is right, and Jesus compels us there to live righteously that others might see and glorify our Father who is in heaven. In the second example, what we're looking at today, our pride gets in the way in that it distracts us in thinking that what we do and why we do it is so that others will notice and see us and praise us. So each statement complements the other. Our motivation for how we practice our righteousness is what Jesus is bringing front and center here. One of the popular writings of Jesus' day, it had been around a couple hundred years when he walked the earth, but it was still uh, read and, and thought highly of a Jewish writing, said this, Prayer is good when it is accompanied by fasting, almsgiving, and righteousness. And so this was the expected practice of a good Jew in the days of Jesus. And so Jesus then takes these, what are the norms in the culture, But his emphasis is not on the deeds themselves. He'll give instruction uh, in other places on these, but his instruction here is really on the motivation. The exception would be prayer because he does give further instruction on that. We're going to look at that later. But in these three sections that we're looking at today, the motivation or, or the focus rather is on our motivation, why we do what we do. And the assumption here is not if we do them. In each case, he says when you do them. So the assumption is that Christians do these things. We give, we pray, and we fast. But ultimately, what he's getting at is that our motivation matters. And so he begins here in verse 2 with almsgiving. That is charitable giving or the uh, giving to those in need. Almsgiving was, was not the regular gift that one would give at the synagogue, the, the tithe uh, or the offering given there, but it was something given for people who were in need. We might think of the mercy box uh, in the back. That would be uh, uh, commensurate to, to almsgiving. Uh, it, it's not, though, if you give to the needy, but when you give to the needy that Jesus says, making it clear that this is an expected practice for Christians. He says, when you do this, do not sound a trumpet when you're giving that you might be noticed. Now, trumpets were used in the synagogues to announce the call to prayer multiple times each day. So trumpets were something that his hearers would have understood. We say that today, and we imagine people going around with trumpets announcing what they were doing. I don't think that this was a literal uh, event that was happening. At least there's no evidence that people were doing it. It's possible because we've seen, I mean, we've all done wacky stuff ourselves, but we've seen people do some wacky stuff. Uh, I imagine there's somewhere, somebody somewhere who's got an offering plate in the front, who's got an air horn, and every time somebody comes up and gives, they try and draw attention to it. 
But as Presbyterians, we would find that, you know, really, really ridiculous, right? Uh, we wouldn't do that. But, th- but even in the different practices of giving, the point that Jesus is making through this picture, uh, through this illustration, is that you're not to blow a trumpet. Now, the little legalist in all of us says, well, I don't even play the trumpet, so I'm not guilty of this, right? <laughs> right? That's, that, that's what the little legalist in all of us wants to do. But his point is do not draw attention in any way to what you are doing. And so there might be ways that we're tempted to do this. Uh, You've heard of the humble brag? If you haven't, the humble brag is where we casually mention in a conversation, we work it into the conversation, some righteous deed that we've done. Well, you know, yesterday when I was um, (coughs) volunteering at the uh, the, the local shelter, I, I stubbed my, my, my finger and I jammed it, and I've got it, yeah, that's why I've got it taped up today. You know, we just work it into the conversation, let people know that we were vo- doing volunteer work or whatever it is, or the gift that we've given or whatever. Might be tempted to post it online, publish it some other way, let people know. Some people get a plaque when they give, post it in a building. If you give enough, you could even have a building named after you. And the point of all of this is this is not to be our motivation for giving. That is, for the praise of others. Instead, we are to give out of love from a sincere heart that loves God first, loves neighbor as ourself. We see a need and we respond. And so in verse 3, then, Jesus provides some practical steps to how we can do this. He's going to do this with all three examples. In verse 3, he says, When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Now, the statement puzzles us because how in the world do you do that? First of all, most of the time our hands work together. We don't even think about it. They do things in tandem. Yet even if we did something single-handedly, how would our brain know not to record that event or remember that event as if our left hand could not know what our right hand was doing? But the point is, again, just like with the trumpet that we're not to go around blowing trumpets, uh, the point is here an image that we can see that we're to do things with an attitude of self-forgetfulness. We are to do things, he keeps saying the word secret, in secret. There's, there's a component of our religion that is to be practiced in secret. Now, you can't limit it to being done in secret. You've maybe heard some people like, well, I practice my religion in secret. I'm, I, don't, I don't go to church or I don't do this or I don't do that because I practice my religion in secret. But the whole point of, of, of chapter 5, verse 16 is so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. It isn't either or, it's both and. But there's an attitude of, 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 of doing things in secret. That is, we're not keeping a record for ourselves for self-congratulation, and we're not posting a record for others to see and congratulate us that we're doing it for the praise of men. In the, in the chapter 25, Matthew records Jesus dealing with the final judgment. And there he describes the righteous acts of the faithful. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And they ask all of the same questions. And he answers and says, truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, the primary emphasis that Jesus is making is how we serve other people is is unto the Lord. But there's also this notion or this implication here that the the righteous here are not portrayed as having their... list you know that they roll out on the scroll like the the pharisee did in the prayer of all the righteous things they've done like you know that they're looking over there it's almost like they're aloof to it like when did we do this that's the attitude that we're not keeping a list that we're not keeping a record that we're not recounting all the righteous things that we've done 
that we're doing it as unto the Lord in secret. We're to obey out of love, not for the purpose of self-congratulation or the congratulation of others. That is, we are to give in secret. And the outcome of doing so, Jesus says, is that our Father who is in secret will reward us because he's omniscient, because he knows all. There's not anything that we've ever given that God doesn't know about. Uh, there's not any way that we can ever outgive God. He knows everything. And so he, he uh, begins, at, well, in, in verse 2, he said, the hypocrites have received their reward. He's already said that. He says that in each case. The hypocrites, their motivation uh, was to be seen. They've been seen. Transaction complete. That's their reward. That's the extent of it. There's no more for them. They got what they wanted. But he says to the faithful who give from a sincere heart, there's great reward. In Acts 20, verse 35, Jesus is quoted, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That is a true statement. Not just in a warm and fuzzy way that, oh, it feels good. But Jesus applies a a beatitude here. That it is blessed, that we are pronounced blessed, that there is something real and tangible from God in our giving. We may also get to witness the burden being lifted of the one in need. That's a blessing. That's a reward to be able to do that. Uh, We see from the passage in Matthew 25 that we read that there is a future reward that awaits us as well. As followers of Christ, we are to give generously out of the great love that has been shown to us in him. Yet our motivation must be sincere from love and in faith to the glory of God. In verse 5, Jesus takes on the subject of prayer, saying, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Again, Jesus doesn't say if you pray, but when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. He is not prohibiting public prayer here. He's not saying that we should never pray in public, but he's saying we shouldn't pray for the sake of being heard. There's a difference in that. Public prayer is a part of our liturgy of worship. It's been a part of the, the, the assembly from as far back in the Old Testament as we can, can see where it is both described and prescribed that we are to pray together. So the problem isn't uh, public prayers. The problem is, again, the motivation of our hearts. Why are we saying what we're saying and how are we saying what we're saying? A good example of how not to pray, I mentioned it just a second ago, is found in Luke 18, where the the, uh, Pharisee stands and he says, he he prays thusly, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. It is sounding a trumpet, right? It's a ridiculous act. Who can imagine someone praying like this and yet we probably all inserted little comments here or there in our prayers where we've been tempted to make that humble brag or to remind others if we're praying publicly or, or maybe we think we need to remind God of all the good things that we've done. Jesus says, don't pray like this. He points instead to the one who the, the, the Pharisee makes fun of, who the Pharisee belittles. And uh, this tax collector prays very simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me. This is, this is the example that is set before us. Let me also say, beyond our motivation in prayer, that in terms of as we come together in corporate worship and our public prayer, or as, as we experience that in the act of worship, uh, we're, we're often, most of us, are the listener. Sometimes I'm the listener, sometimes I'm the prayer, but most of us in this room are the listeners. What do we do during this time? 
Let me encourage you not to, to treat this as if it is a performance. You're not accountable for the person praying. So if that's, that's where their heart is, you're not accountable for that. You don't need to judge that. You don't need to, to figure that out. What is your attitude during the public prayer? And what our attitude should be like is an attitude of prayer. We should join in in our inner voice, praying with the, the prayer that's being prayed. We should be mindful. It's not a time to tune out. It's not a time to get a few extra Zs before the next part where we have to stand up again or sit down again or whatever it is that we do next. It is a time to be prayerful, to be mindful, uh, to, to lift our inward voices, to participate in the prayer in a prayerful manner. Now, just like with giving, Jesus adds some practical steps to how we can accomplish this, that prayer is not being limited to court. It's not prohibited in corporate worship. It's not limited to corporate worship. Prayer is to be practiced in our daily lives. He says, when you do this, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. A little legalist again wants to find that room so we can close the door. And we realize that most of the hearers of this sermon in ancient Palestine lived in one-room houses. Jesus' point is not location. Jesus' point is attitude. A corner may be all you can get. Outside under a tree may be all you can get. We see this in the life of Jesus where he pulled away so many times. Uh, and and it, it wasn't necessarily in a room with a closed door. It's not about the room. It's not about the closed door, although that's a really practical uh, suggestion if we could achieve it. But the idea is that we are to pull away, to focus, to not pray where we can be heard, to not pray loudly, to not pray for the sake of others hearing our words, but to pray to an audience of one, to be seen and heard by God alone. So it's not about the location. It's about the attitude of the heart. We read in Psalm 27 this morning, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. That's the attitude that our hearts are to express, that we are seeking God's face alone and not the praise of men. Knox Chamberlain writes, solitude offers a negative antidote to pride. By praying alone, the individual avoids the gaze of other people. While Jesus was never guilty of pride, it is noteworthy he chose solitude for his longest times of prayer. And so it's worth thinking about in terms of how we we practice our prayer. Now, as we saw with giving, the hypocrites, they've received their reward. They have desired to be heard by others. They have been heard by others. And so the transaction is complete. But for the faithful, there is a, a, a true blessing that comes. One, as we pray, particularly in private, but also corporately, I hope this is true as well, that our hearts are made glad as we enjoy the presence of God in prayer. We are reminded of the great and precious promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. When we cry out, Abba, Father, Scripture tells us that the Spirit assures us of our adoption as the children of God and and, and that we would increase in confidence of his love for us. As we pray with sincere hearts to God alone, he blesses us with his peace that passes our understanding and makes his face to shine upon us. And then let's look down to verse 16, the final example. This is his instruction regarding fasting. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Once again, not if, but when. Uh, This is something Christians don't talk about a lot. Nowadays, we see fasting quite a bit in the Old Testament. It is also present in the New Testament in a number of places. We won't take the time to look at all of those. Uh, But the three main purposes of fasting were this. One was to mourn over sin. 
Second, uh, seek God's help in time of trouble. And third, to wait for God's direction. So fasting is a way of allowing our attention to be focused on spiritual matters by saying no to food, or if there's, there's other ways of fasting, food is the primary way. There are other ways, other things that we can fast from. And the whole intent, though, is not to be seen, not to be noticed, but to help ourselves. It is a spiritual discipline. It is not meritorious. It is designed to help us hone our attention. Now, the hypocrites of Jesus' day, though, they weren't interested in honing their spiritual attention. They just wanted the praise of others. And so they looked gloomy and disfigured their faces. Again, it's almost this ridiculous picture like, who, what adult does this? Uh, you know, what, who, who really does this? But their motivation was they wanted you to say, what's wrong? Oh, I'm just, I'm just fasting, you know. Uh, it's, it's okay. Yeah. Being noticed. That's what they wanted, and Jesus says they get it. That's their full reward. But then he gives practical instruction to believers. When you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, get ready for the day just like you normally would. Get yourself did. Do your, do your things. You know, make yourself presentable just like you normally would. Don't do anything to draw attention to yourself. Do your fasting in secret. Don't announce it. Don't promote it. Now, we may not be tempted to go and disfigure our faces, and most people would probably think the last thing we were doing was fasting. They would probably think a hundred other things before that. So our temptation is to make it known in other ways. We talked about the humble brag. Uh, I can imagine an Instagram post of a picture of a Bible with a glass of water, hashtag fasting, you know, just to let people know that today, you know, I'm fasting. Our temptations are in other ways to let people know. The point Jesus is making is whatever it is, that's not the point of fasting, to let people know. Our Father, who is in secret, knows. Do it in secret. He knows our giving. He knows our prayers. He knows when we fast. He knows our motivation. For all of these things and the reward for each of these when we do so sincerely is ultimately himself he comforts he reminds he provides and he is present with us as we sincerely practice our righteousness the point of any message on hypocrisy is pretty simple may we not be hypocrites right i mean that's 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 kind of that's how simple it is But as we are all aware, we play the hypocrite daily. Even if we are unaware like the emperor with no clothes, God knows all the secrets of our hearts. And thankfully, his mercy is more than our sinful hypocrisy. Jesus laid down his life because we have so miserably failed to measure up to his holy standard. In love and through his gracious life and death, he has covered our multitude of sins even the ones that we're unaware of. If we are trusting in him, our sins have been washed away. We have been cleansed from all unrighteousness. In mercy, he has made our hypocritical hearts brighter and cleaner than a fresh fallen snow. And so as we revel in the glory of God, as we marvel at the beauty of the Savior, as we consider the love that has been lavished upon us, Our hearts are transformed from being self-focused to being God-focused. We must forget ourselves, our self-praise, and the desire for the praise of others. 
The antidote to hypocrisy is self-forgetfulness and true worship of our Savior. It's not either or, it's both and, uh, but it's that practice. The minute we stop either one of those is the, is the moment that hypocrisy creeps back in the door. There is a beautiful and practical summary of not only this passage, uh, but really all that we've seen so far in the Sermon on the Mount that I want to close with today. It's in Romans 12. I invite you to listen closely to it. There we read, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so may we endeavor then to live sincerely, acknowledging our sinfulness and repenting of our hypocrisy while looking with eyes of faith to Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the Father on high, interceding for each of us. Let's pray. Father, make our hearts glad today in Jesus. For if we put our confidence in ourselves, in our behavior, in our performance, we would be thoroughly and utterly despondent. We don't measure up. We blow it again and again. We continually fail to meet the standard. And one of the ways that we can see this so clearly is our hypocrisy. We say we're going to love others. We go out and curse the driver who cuts us off in 10 minutes after we leave church. We get mad at the neighbor who gets in our way. We get angry at the coworker who takes what we thought was rightfully ours. Father, forgive us. Would you help us to see Christ exalted, seated at the right hand, interceding now for us on our behalf, pleading his own blood in our place that covers our multitude and multitude of sins. Lord, make our hearts glad in Christ that we have been forgiven, that our sins have been washed away, that we are cleansed in Jesus. And then, Lord, strengthen us to live as unto you, to practice our religion 
sincerely and with genuineness, loving you first and foremost and loving neighbor as ourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response our hymn of of response, number 528, My Faith Looks Up to Thee, number 528.